When I was a kid, I used to dream what it would be like to, to live somewhere far away from Hell's Kitchen. Somewhere beautiful. I realized that the city was a part of me, that it was in my blood. I would do anything to make it a better place. If he had an iron suit or a magic hammer, maybe that would explain why you keep getting your asses handed to you. TV podcast. This is episode 13 of the show about Marvel's Netflix TV shows, Daredevil, Iron Fist, aka Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, all leading to the miniseries The Defenders. This is episode 13 of our show, covering Daredevil episode 8, Shadows in the Glass. I'm one of your hosts, Derek. I'm your lawyer by day, defender by night. I'm Chris, also known as Jessica Jones, but only on the weekends. I'm your Iron Fist, who's meeting up with Misty Knight next Monday. And I'm Irene, the Unbreakable Cage. Welcome, welcome everybody. Yeah, I guess we're still kind of reeling from our coverage of uh, of Age of Ultron. If you missed the episode, we had a pretty epic podcast all about uh, Age of Ultron. Uh, hopefully you've just skipped it because you're you're waiting to see the film because that was full of spoilers, but I uh, had a great discussion there. Yeah, great, great film. Uh, really good. Um, listen to our thoughts. It, that podcast is more like Sunday papers. You, you know, sit back, put on the fire have the, the roast chicken in the oven uh, and listen to the soothing dulcet tones of the four defenders. Absolutely, absolutely. So delighted to have all four of us back for an episode of Daredevil. Um, what do you guys think of this episode? This is, a, this is an interesting one. This is just the, basically the secret origins of Wilson Fisk mm-hmm. and I know we'll get into it later. It's pretty epic in its own right after saying we... Ultron was pretty epic. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, absolutely. I really enjoyed this one, I must say. Yeah, this was the big film for the small screen. A really great origin tale of Wilson Fisk. I, I loved it. Yeah. A uh, little, uh, little bit of feedback to start off with. Um, we got some feedback from Rebecca Brodeur, one of our followers on Facebook, uh, who has just calling out the fact that we may have mispronounced one of the characters' names a couple of times in the past. So thanks very much for that, for that Rebecca. We promise it will be Ben Ulrich from now on. No, so. it's Ulrich. It will always be Ulrich. No, of course. Ulrika. <laughs> so thanks very much for that, Rebecca. Yeah, I know sometimes when we're recording our podcast, we may run through a name very quickly, but apparently Ben Ulrich is the uh, the most mispronounced version of, uh, of his name uh, is Ben Ulrich. So it is Ben Ulrich. Auric. We will get it right from now on. Thanks very much. And um, with that, we will go on to Shadows in the Glass, episode eight of Daredevil. This episode was directed by Stephen Sergic, who's directed episodes of Flash and the Arrow, so no stranger to comic book TV. He also directed The Blacklist, which starred our Ultron, James Spader. So uh, he's worked mm. in, he worked at one of the big characters of the Marvel Universe as well. Um, and it's written by the showrunner, Stephen Denight. Uh, so this is his first episode that he gets a sole credit of writing for. Um, quite interesting that we're watching it in the week that the announcement for season two has been uh, has come out. And Yay. it's been announced that Stephen Denight is not actually going to be the showrunner for season two. Oh. Um, yeah, that we're going to get two different showrunners for, for next season. But the good news is it's Doug Petrie who's written a bunch of episodes that we've really enjoyed so far. 
um, who's one of the showrunners, and Marcus Ramirez, who's another one of the showrunners for the current season. He's one of the uh, executive producers and also written a couple of episodes this season. So we do have a season two of Daredevil. It is coming soon. Um, we can't wait, obviously, because we've been enjoying these episodes so much. But I think we're going to kick into episode eight. John, do you want to give us your synopsis? Yeah. Daredevil, episode eight, Shadows in the Glass. Wilson Fisk, as the connecting force between the members of the crime syndicate, is cast into doubt following the loss of Black Sky Weapon for Nobu, the personal attack on Leyland Owsley, and the increasing disruption of product trade for Madame Gao. All this uncertainty of Fisk is set in the context of his own personal anxiousness that is increasingly manifest with dreams and flashback to his disturbing and troubled childhood. All the while, Matt Murdock gets involved in Foggy and Karen's investigation of Union Allies, following a careless slip of the tongue by Foggy, but brings their research back onto their turf, the law. Meanwhile, his alter ego, the man in black, gets more information on Fisk's organisation from Detective Blake, who has woken up from his coma, and he uses this to persuade Benerick to reveal Wilson Fisk from the shadows and to bring him into the light. However, Matt's move is trumped by Fisk, although he doesn't know this, as he moves to walk from the darkness of Hell's Kitchen into the light of the media spotlight and of New York, after his friend Wesley and his partner Vanessa help to reinvigor Wilson Fisk, his confidence and his plan for my city. Mm-hmm. Very good, yes, there's definitely, uh, definitely some good connections in here. A very interesting episode, and as you said, Chris, the creation of Wilson Fisk is really discussed in this episode. Really good. Yeah. Uh, Irene, do you want to kick us off with your first point of, of your five? We go in easy. Okay. And start with Karen and Foggy. Okay. Um, I thought Matt was really like a parent in this episode. They were really like children, excited children. Uh, Foggy is all delighted with himself because of the baseball bat that he saved Karen. And mm-hmm. she was like an excited child as well. She's backing him up like, you know, yeah, he'd be able to protect me and... Matt's just looking through them like you've no idea. You've no idea what you're getting yourselves into. Yeah. And he's trying to say to them that you're, you know, you're going to get hurt. So you need to, you really do need to be careful. And he, you can see him thinking, Foggy with a baseball bat is not going to do it. <laughs> but like, yeah, um, he was quite harsh with Karen. He was really cutting. He was trying mm-hmm. to get her to listen to him. You know, cut through the exuberance and get her to actually go. Oh God, maybe he's right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. It's very much kind of stop, stop playing here. Yeah. You know, he's he's worked his entire life to become the vigilante of Hell's Kitchen. He's worked really hard to set up a law practice, and he's like, "Don't put that in any jeopardy just with your play acting." Essentially, yeah, you two yeah. are not going to be able to just launch into this now, right? Gold. Yeah, 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 and I, I like the idea that. Foggy, unfortunately, um, nice guy. He's not a viable option uh, for a vigilante. He probably had a lucky swing and a lucky hit. Mm-hmm. Um, and who knows, may have actually killed that guy with a metal baseball bat to the head rather than just simply uh, knock him out. Yeah, but uh, yeah, no, definitely. Foggy is not a viable option with regards to being the, the heavy hand um, and muscle in this group. And I, I do, I like how... Matt then also just brings them, rolls, reels them back in, basically, um, and this idea of getting them onto their own turf, which is essentially looking in the books and a bit like Layla Owsley following the the trail on on the paper rather than being 
on the street investigating. I, I kind of really like that. I also liked how Matt Murdock calls it out. You know, you've signed a confidentiality clause with mm. this company. You know, what you're doing is stupid because if we go to the law, you're in deep trouble if anything yeah. of this goes public. Yeah. So I like that they kind of just pull out um, sort of the inconsistencies in Karen's thought processes within the the show as well. Yeah, and her face when he said that she really thought that he back her. She, I don't know why, but she doesn't put. She doesn't seem to hold any. She doesn't think that that confidentiality clause holds any water at all. Yeah, she's just like, well, yeah, but like because you know why I signed it, then you, you know you should you should agree with me. Like I of course I yeah I signed it, but of course I'm going to go and keep investigating. And yeah, he's just looking at her go, again. It's like reality check kind of. Do you understand? You work in a law room here, Karen. Yeah. We know the law here, and if you sign that, you can't spread the news about it to yeah. the papers. Yeah, exactly. And even the going... fact that you're telling me exactly. is probably you know implicating me then. Yeah. They're going to find you. They're going to send people after you. The reason you signed that was to keep yourself safe kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. But I do love that the call today, just for us and on Defenders TV podcast, because we specifically said in that episode, yeah. has she signed that confidentiality agreement? They hadn't made any mention of it. No. She's been asked to sign it. She walked away. And we said, we hope we she signed sure it she or, yeah. or hasn't. And we need to know that. So at least they've called it out for us on the show itself. Definitely. One of the other things quickly that they've called out for us is confirmation that Black Sky is dead and has been killed off by um, Stick from the previous episode. That was yep. another thing that we weren't entirely sure and um, that obviously the Japanese aren't very happy now that their weapon has been neutralised. Yeah, that neatly leads me into my next point. <laughs> so my first point is actually about Black Skies because they do call it out. We said in, in our last episode discussion on this, uh, on Stick, episode 7 of, of Daredevil, we were wondering what Black Sky was. I'd... I'd put forward the idea that perhaps it's a, it's an inhuman, um, that this this is a creature, this is a, a, a we- the weapon that they're using is an inhuman. It's something that has a very powerful is a very powerful being. Uh, so I just wanted to pull out the fact that yes, they specifically said this character's dead, they've, that they've lost Black Sky, but Nobu does say uh, it's very hard to find another Black Sky. There are more of those particular types of characters in in this universe there's more black skies out there but it's very difficult to find them it took them years to find this black sky it'll take them years to find another black sky now I'm not too sure about whether it is an inhuman or not or whether it's something else maybe maybe it's some other type of being yeah I think it I don't actually think it's inhuman I I do agree it could be and it would make sense I actually think they're more setting up uh, the Iron Fist connection with this in that most likely this child is one of a, a person from the one of the seven heavenly cities mm-hmm. um, and or is one of the immortal weapons etc uh, etc et it could be have it, I think it's more magical side mm-hmm. um, because uh, the, the heartbeat part and we we hear about there was a second heartbeat or there was a something there yeah. and that was like I was like okay so it's probably less inhuman more magic magic right but again, we're not we're not going to know this. I, and the, this is I you guys know me. I love speculating. This is the fun part for mm-hmm. me. Um, because even the kanji on the side of that container mm-hmm. was for uh, Aromato Industries or Technologies, right. which is the Silver Samurai in Wolverine. Oh, right, interesting. So he later becomes Silver Samurai. That's his. Bit. So I think again, it's a nice nod. So a nice, a nice little connection to the other Japanese side of uh, 
of the Marvel yeah. universe, which is which is Wolverine. Yeah, which yeah. I think they could only do. They couldn't do it as Samurai Industries or Silver. So they couldn't have it because that's all owned by Sony yes. or Fox. Yeah. Uh, Fox. Fox. Yeah. Yes. Um, but I think it was a nice enough nod to go. Yeah. Okay. We have more of. There's more Japanese here. But yeah, I think it's a connection to the Heavenly Cities is probably very Iron Fist related. Mm-hmm. But we had a discussion off air previously mm-hmm. in that the Inhumans, the film, is not coming until 20, oh, 2018. 2018. Yeah. Um, we've got Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. setting it up quite now, lovely across, and we have a lot of interest there. But could you really kind of reference a black sky as being a human mm-hmm. now when a lot of people are going to have to remember two years previously when they're watching a human's film. Right, right. And I it's kind of like, yeah. it's like, yeah, we can drop hints. I think it's more, yeah. okay, you've got a year or a year and a half till Iron Fist, mm-hmm. so we'll just drop in some sprinklings of magic here and there. Yeah, absolutely. I think the idea in the Marvel Universe, the way they're treating the inhuman characters is because they don't own the rights to the X-Men and there are hundreds and hundreds of X-Men it very much feels like they're treating the Inhumans like that for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. They're going, there are hundreds and hundreds of Inhumans, which are just people with powers. Um, so that's what they're using them for in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. They're using them as they all have a gene, Absolutely. and that gene is because they're an Inhuman and the Terriumus is changing them. Because we still also have the likes of the Exorbiting Man mm-hmm. in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, who is Creel, um, who's been referenced in this show, related to the Exorbiting Man, um, he, they're the enhanced they're the specials yeah, yeah. so I think the, I think what they're trying to do is they're setting up two different ways of becoming powerful yes yeah exactly so again so in the Marvel Cinematic Universe you have the heroes and you have the the mutants yes. this is the heroes and the inhumans okay, is what I mean yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, not, not clear enough on that sorry yeah. but um, yeah so I think that's the way they're doing it I think they're just they're kind of taking those elements and spreading them out so it's possible this could have been an inhuman maybe we'll see a different one in other, in other films and other TV shows. With that, Chris, do you want to give us your first point? Okay. I, I have to do it. Okay. Mr. Potter has arrived. Mm-hmm. Yes. We have seen has. Mr. Potter. It is coming off the dareboard. Mm-hmm. It, we have seen Gladiator in all his glorious <laughs> workshops. Um, so we previously talked about Mr. Potter. Could this be Melvin Potter? Could this be the supervillain named as Gladiator who is known for building all these suits mm-hmm. for uh, different villains in the MCU, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe now and actually in the comic books? Um, so we, A, see that scene, which is fantastic. We see Fisk, or we see Owly um, getting fitted in a lovely green suit mm-hmm. with a cape. To even have that, and that's a great link back to uh, Owly, who becomes um, in the comic books the Owl, mm-hmm. who was known for wearing a green cape uh, and a green suit and using the cape to fly. Yeah. Um, and then on the this is the scene with the tailor, isn't it? Yes, yeah. is Mr. Potter. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Um, but then on the wall in this tailor shop, we see the gladiatorial uh, image mm-hmm. uh, in the blue and yellow which is fantastic um, because that's obviously his supervillain moniker. Uh, we see yes. buzzsaw blades. For, for the movie Revenge of the Gladiator. Uh, that's what I ah, on that one. So, anyway. Damn, I didn't Sorry. know that. <laughs> it was in, was it in a different language? Uh, yes. Ah, French. French. Yeah. Um, we see the buzzsaw blades, which mm-hmm. uh, in the comic books he had attached to his arms. And then um, I think I saw some things leaning against one of the walls. Okay. If I'm correct, and I'm hoping I am, 
these are probably stilts <laughs> from <laughs> the Stilt Man, <laughs> which is one of the terrible 1960s, 1970s arch villains against the Daredevil. Yeah. This man who just had stilts for legs mm-hmm. and was built by, this suit of armour was built by um, Melvin Potter. So for me, that was just, it was great because it confirmed something for me yeah. that I was actually starting to doubt. Uh, and then we got not only just that nod, we got no, possibly a nod to Stiltman, we definitely got a nod to the Gladiator, mm-hmm. and then we got a nod to the Owly. Or the owl. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's great to take something down off the uh, off the dare board that we talked about in episode two. I think they mentioned, or maybe episode three, they mentioned uh, mentioned Mister Potter, and you instantly realised who it was. So, good catch there, Chris. Good catch. Definitely. I I must say I loved as well, um, Leyland Owley, Leyland Owsley, um, saying this kid is half an idiot mm-hmm. uh, about Mister Potter, and then you have Fist coming back. It's the other half that counts. Uh, that was a sweet yeah. little line uh, as well. Uh, it's great having that kind of that moment where you you go into the room and there's all these little Easter eggs. It kind of reminded me of the scene from Constantine, actually, where you go into his um, mill house um, in I think it's the first episode, and you have Doctor Fate's helmet. You have all these different references to the Hellblazer world from Constantine as well. So, yeah. this was one of those moments for me, which was perfect. Yeah, it makes me want to makes me want to look at every single room that people have walked into and know and see what I've missed basically so far. Has there been any stuff that we've missed? I'm sure there is. Yeah, the amount of Easter eggs that I'm catching mm-hmm. and questioning makes me think that we've missed. 10s, 20, 30 different ones already Yeah, uh, that will not be explained properly until the end and when we get to episode 13 like some of our listeners are mm-hmm. already there we'll go oh that meant that and, oh, no. and that's when our extra nerds will kick in <laughs> our geeks will kick in and we're like oh my god that's actually such and such from yeah. this comic book and such and such yeah so I agree I think this was that and one my, of those moments yeah and my chocoholicism because Easter eggs, I'm never going to get out of Easter. Chocolate, chocolate, Yeah, it is definitely the pleasure of watching these episodes as we go and, and recording our podcast directly after watching an episode is that we, we're seeing stuff come up and we're speculating about it and then hopefully it'll pay off. Maybe it won't, but uh, it's great to speculate and great to pick up some Easter eggs here and there. Well, I have something up for the Dare board as well, and this is my next point, and it is Madame Gal. Mm, interesting. And whether... She is Mother Crane, um, and whether this links into the Iron Fist. We've already kind of mentioned about the the rising snake symbol um, on her product, on her drugs that she's shipping, uh, and this kind of all makes reference to the counterpoint to Iron Fist, which is the Steel Serpent, also known as Davos uh, from the Ed Brubaker and uh, Matt Fraction series of comics Mm -hmm. and the immortal iron fist and um this is a good little setup now to certainly bringing in elements that will impact on the iron fist world but i want to put it out up there now that madame gal um could be uh, mother crane and i do think that um that whole scene with wilson fisk where she is there and she is a wise woman i love the line where she goes it is a clever man who acts the fool and a foolish woman who doesn't recognise this. Mm-hmm. And she, she picks him out. It's where Wesley is translating her from Chinese to English to Wilson and she just turns to to Wilson and says, 
in English, you don't need to um, get him to choose my form of words. Yeah. You can understand me. And it's a great little scene, and it completely pulls the rug under Fisk's um, feet. It's that whole idea where his confidence is getting knocked in this episode because of all the crime syndicate are asking questions of him. And this is Madame Gao in his... Um, in his home, in his apartment, which we were talking about last time, will we get to see of course. <laughs> the, the lair, the, the house where he lives, and we do. Yeah, of um, course I said that we wouldn't. We probably His lair would, is probably the three vans that he drives around with in the streets. Yes. Uh, and, of course, the next episode they show us his home. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah. For the entire episode yeah. he sits in his home and the, I did and think the that villains arrive. The whole, nearly the whole episode. <laughs> yeah. I still yeah, think that's that okay. that's his lair where he does that type of business. Mm-hmm. Um, but she also does say that she speaks English and all the other languages as well. And again, I don't think that that simply means French, German, Chinese, Japanese. I think these are Creed. other languages that move into potentially the mystical uh, realm. So I, I really kind of liked this whole meeting because it gave further connection to other members of the Defenders. And um, it certainly with regards to the Steel Serpent and, and Mother Crane, who, you know, they are some of the big nemesises, or nemesi, of, yeah. um, <laughs> of Iron Fist, um, you know, who try to steal the power of Kun Lum and, and the Iron Fist that they have. So this is a really, like, nice development of those connections, but also within this story, I just love Madame Gao interrogating Wilson Fisk mm-hmm. but still having a huge amount of respect for him because he has shown her respect but she threatens to bypass him if he doesn't get his house in order mm-hmm. which is typically kind of Game of Thrones Westeros mm-hmm. type thing yeah you could definitely feel that House Gow would be a, a formidable house in, uh, in Westeros really wouldn't it yeah Cause it, I thought when Fisk was speaking to Nobu that it sounded like he was trying to well no he was he was speaking down to him kind of mm-hmm. and like as polite as he and Wesley are Wesley especially is all very polite um, Nobu is obviously raging he's like well, I think you know when he says I think maybe we need to uh, rethink our arrangement yeah and then he kind of says I'm sorry but from what she's saying then she's like I'm, if you don't get your house in order I'm going to bypass you mm-hmm. and deal directly with Leland and Nobu so it is that's more like they all are on a par but that's not the impression you get from Fisk. Yes, yes, I know, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, it does it? I, I was saying in one of the earlier episodes that it looks like Fisk is kind of subservient to some of the uh, some of the other characters, definitely, and that seems to be the way he feels. And they're now pressuring him down to the point that I think she says, "You're getting sloppy, like the Russians were just before they they were were taken, were yeah. taken essentially, yeah. exactly, taken out of the equation, essentially." So. Could that happen to Fisk if he doesn't do what he needs to do here? Yeah. Um, she's certainly disappointed, although she likes his tea, um, so that's good. <laughs> He's obviously raging that she said this to him. Yeah. But, or even probably that she even thinks that, that he needs to get his house in order that it was sloppy. You know, he's just so angry with himself about yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, and it's even just the fact that she, she calls him out saying that things are sort of starting to get out of control uh, and become emotional. You're becoming emotional just like the Russians towards their end. And, of course, that's like a huge diss yeah, mm-hmm. to him. Definitely. This is like he stuck the knife in on them for that very reason. And he's now acting like them as far as she can tell. Yeah. 
But um, I just thought it was kind of really cool how Madame Gao, she's been the quiet one, and it, the quiet ones are always dangerous, aren't it they? Is always the quiet ones. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so I liked that. I, I liked how she kind of came out of the shadows of, of this syndicate to sort of reveal a bit more of her hand, really, mm-hmm. here. Yeah, yeah. Um, Irene, do you want to give us your next point? Um, it kind of leads on from this. Kind of, it's good to do with Fisk and Wesley speaking to um, Hoffman, and how they actually, despite the fact that when they're going into it, Wesley says they they go back, you know, before the academy. It's not just a, a friendship from being colleagues. It's yeah. way more than that. Goes probably goes back to the church childhood, and then they actually speak to Hoffman and manage to convince. They managed to convince him, maybe not that much trouble to convince him. Mm-hmm. Is it how much per year basically is it worth to you? Yeah, and yeah. you're, I, I was inside going, don't do it, mm-hmm. oh, don't do it. Yeah, but obviously he does. I know the idea, the idea of killing one of your best friends. Then you go, well, let me see, thirty years as a friend, thirty million dollars. No, I wouldn't sacrifice any of you guys for that. I promise. Ah, <laughs> no, thank you. If they offered fifty, that's a different story. <laughs> thirty times two million, <clears throat> sixty million. No, no, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. No, but it is a really good scene, and it's a that's a really tough moment, I'd say, for to, from a character perspective, definitely what they're what they're trying to force him to do. And again, there's a really good point. Once again, Wilson Fisk gives really good justification for this. Yep. He calls out the fact that you know. If it wasn't for your partner Blake, these this sequence of events wouldn't have happened. This is directly caused by his just intervention. Co- his his just not telling them that the phone had been taken. Exactly, that's a, something as simple as that. Yeah, and uh, he says, "Well, you know, he he had been beaten up, and like, but that's not enough." Yes, yeah, <laughs> exactly. You need you need to make an excuse, a proper excuse for Fisk, or tell him what's going on. If he'd known, at least he could have arrange something differently this kind of stuff looks like it had never happened in the past Fisk has never come out of the shadows before yeah so clearly he's never so. had to maybe yeah exactly. approach somebody and threaten them like this yeah yeah and, yeah, and I really like the way Hoffman said to him how long before I do something that pisses you off yeah because there's brilliant scene yeah. I'm just about to basically is what you're probably thinking yeah, that's what I was thinking yep. you're probably yeah. just about to because he's obviously going to say something to you now yep. and you're probably going to refuse and once again Fisk delivers the fantastic line of that's all in your hands. So it is a an, a fundamental threat to Hoffman. Yeah. Uh, it could be in 15 minutes. It could be in three weeks. It could be in 20 years. It is going to be your fault, though. <laughs> it's not mine. Yeah, it's you your you. Yeah, yeah, really good. But, and I think as well, it, just the precision of how he makes that point where he says that it was almost fine that Detective Blake got beaten up mm-hmm. by the mass vigilante, that even that the phone with the text messages on them was stolen and he just calls it out that what was indefensible was that he didn't tell anyone else exactly. that that had been compromised yeah. and it's he he uses the the phrase that it's the the facts as they are not how we perceive them or would like to perceive them it's yeah. just so precise and so analytical in relation to a fairly detached thing to do anyway asking someone's best friend to actually kill their best friend yeah yeah absolutely and obviously it's really chilling that it's a meatball soap that took him down <laughs> absolutely <laughs> just looks at it loved the way the cop just looked in the bag and he goes meatball soap meatball soap he goes you know he loves that place it's like perfectly okay and you go yeah kind of leads in very well to to my next point thanks Irene for setting me up on this one 
Blake is finally dead. Uh, we talked about it on last episode. The the cop that survives every single attack that's happened on him. We John was saying he was looking up the uh, the Marvel Encyclopedia to try and find a police officer that doesn't die essentially, um, because Blake seemed to be seemed to have some kind of superpower of avoiding you know getting killed by the vigilante, getting getting shot. Um, you know, it's uh, it's it's really interesting. And now he finally dies, and it's by a meatball sub. Uh, so, so now we have to find out who has a uh, who has a weakness for meatball subs meat in the Marvel injection. Universe. <laughs> oh, I know I do. A hot meat injection. I mean, was that what But as well, is Bullseye slipping? Mm. That's the question I want to ask. He obviously didn't hit his mark. If that sniper is Bullseye, it wasn't a fatal kill. That's right, yeah. Unless it was deliberate that it wasn't a fatal kill, in which case, again, Bullseye is on the mark. But Does that mean it couldn't have been him? So, yeah, I, it has to be Bullseye. and I, so, I so that's why I think, much like this is the origin of uh, Daredevil, I think this is the origin of Bullseye. We know, see the playing card side on the, mm-hmm. the, the sniper a bit. Yep. And I think this is, yeah, he probably wasn't the ultimate sharpshooter mm-hmm. at the beginning he probably was like 99% of the time I win I get to shit on target that one time was a cop I'm sorry <laughs> not my fault I was in there was glare in my eye mm-hmm. I do I do think you have a better point though I think I think you're absolutely right he was told not to kill Blake it was it as was simple as that he was told Blake works for us shoot him but don't kill him put him in the hospital take him out basically. yeah I, don't, I think he was told not to kill him so that's fine that still works with, with Bullseye um, but yeah, it would it would seem very weird if Bullseye says, "I never miss except for that one time." Yeah. <laughs> and that would be the weirdest uh, catchphrase that any character would have had in the Marvel universe. So I have never missed since I was twenty two when I had that one shot, and, <laughs> and before that, I missed maybe three or four times. But you know, since I was twenty two and I've been counting this, I never miss. <laughs> and I always seem to miss when I'm up against it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. yeah. Um, John, do you want to give us your next point? That we see the return of the Billy Clubs immediately after Stick. They're in that hospital. Uh, bedroom mm-hmm. where he takes out Hoffman uh, Daredevil uh, with the Billy Clubs and he also now I presume his suit has got holsters for the Billy Clubs mm-hmm. because he spins around and chucks them into two holsters Yes. so there's off screen development of the suit going on mm-hmm. he now can hold two pieces of wooden stick. Yeah and I think uh, yeah, it's brilliant, we're seeing we've talked about the outfit and the suit so much um, we know it's coming. We too, know it's coming. They, they changed the uh, they changed the uh, image on the Daredevil Netflix to show us the red suit now. So we've yeah. definitely seen it. We know yeah. it's definitely coming. Now, yes. So. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still hoping it's literally the last two second shot <laughs> in the whole 13 episodes. Right. That will make me happy because I don't want as of the next episode he's suddenly yep yeah, okay I've just put in a red suit now yeah we got five episodes of me yeah blah. And as our regular listeners will know, in episode nine now, which is our next episode, that is exactly what's going to happen. There's definitely going to be a suit now that Chris has said it's not going to happen. It's definitely going to be in their next episode. So, John, do you want to give us your next point? Yeah, mine is the cheaper version of the rabbit in the snowstorm. Um, mm. I love the fact that in the flashbacks of the to the younger Wilson Fisk, uh, and it explains why he was captivated by this picture from episode three mm-hmm. and it explains the opening where he wakes up from a nightmare about his past and then looks to the rabbit in the snowstorm and um, for his comfort in a sense and you see it where he's asked to look at the wall and to stir at this 
textured wall finish. Um, the, I think the trade name for it I remember was Art Artex, mm-hmm. um, and that's the the cheap version of the Rabbit in the Snowstorm. That's what brings him back to that point where he can be alone. It it, it kind of tells us why he finds it captivating. It allows him to get out of the real world and to become quite internalized. And I love the fact that it's just simply he's probably spent 13, 15 million dollars on, on, on a white painting that essentially you could get a plasterer to do for um, <laughs> maybe 100 dollars, $100, yeah. 150. I I actually have a problem with that. The the fall, the fall ending scenes where he rather than looking at the the rabbit in the snowstorm, mm-hmm. he longingly shifts his head and stares at Vanessa. Oh, yeah. It was was just, she is now his rabbit in a snowstorm. Agreed, Agreed. but that's built up throughout the episode. That isn't just that scene. No, 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 but it was just, what annoyed me was, it was so, it was cliche. That was the, did they sleep together? (gasps) He woke up. Oh, yeah, yep, yep. He got some. Fisk got some, and he's gonna he's gonna turn and stare at her sleeping body. I was just like, oh, it's been done in so many films. Right. I this has this show is breaking ground in everything I'm seeing. Okay, yes, they ripped off part of the raid for that one shot, but it made it their own. That was, they, never, that was never ripped off. No, I always said it was a, it was a, it was it was using stuff that had been seen in other films. That, that's yeah. Absolutely, yeah. So, the, the, but that felt right. Yeah. This didn't. To me, that 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 was just too much of a. Okay, we've seen that. It's been done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Like, yes, next, please. Yeah, okay. All right. Um, I, I For me, that particular point that you're, ta- that, that you're talking about, John, with regards to the, to the painting versus the artex that he saw as a child, it does give that explanation to to what how he describes the painting to Vanessa. It's, it was a weird moment almost in the episode three when he speaks to her and she says, what is it about this painting that you love? And he says, it makes me feel alone. Uh, which was the weirdest answer at the time we spoke yeah. about it, which is which makes him very a very human character. And now we know that it was the last moment that he ignored something in going on in his life that he could have changed was just before the moment he took up the hammer, uh, which we'll probably talk about uh, a bit later on. But um, but it's just not that Thor's last hammer, moment, though, not Thor's yeah. hammer, no, <laughs> a regular carpenter's hammer. Um, but yeah, it's just you that mean last Jesus's hammer <laughs> potentially. <laughs> I said a regular carpenter. Um, but uh, but it's just that moment that he had that he felt alone. He was left alone by his by his father, obviously, and left alone by his mother um, to to deal with the circumstance. And then it was the turning point for the rest of his life. Essentially, uh, was that moment. But I I really like that as a, as a touch in the show. So. Yeah, it's that whole. It takes him out of the situation. Yeah, yeah. I, I loved it. Really good. So, Chris, do you want to give us your next point? Um, yeah. So obviously, this is the origin or the secret origin of Wilson Fisk. Um, from the comic books, we we do know that his entrance to the crime family mm-hmm. was through Don Rigoletto. That's right. Um, and we always assumed, I think we did assume that the Rigoletto was the boss killed in the bowling alley. Yeah, we yeah. got that wrong. We yeah, got that, that wrong. Specifically calls out the name of the, uh, the name of the character in the episode, and we took it down wrong or, or missed it. But uh, but no, that wasn't Rigoletto. Does yeah. mention him in episode one though? Yeah, uh, and then Rigoletto is. Um, his he he's mentioned in this flashback with right. the father, um, which is fantastic because uh, for those of you who know the origin of Wilson Fisk, but for those of you who don't, he became a bodyguard for Rigoletto, and that's how he was enticed 
into the mafia-like family. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm wondering, will we get a second flashback scene or third flashback scene uh, later in another episode yeah. where we'll see him go to Don Rigoletto and become his bodyguard per se now will they just make, put a bit more hair on uh, D'Onofrio and go he's young look see he has hair yeah. um, I don't know how to do that but that was, I, that was a nice nod to me which is okay they, they've they may not say that he's done it but they've introduced the character as this Don in the family local in, the, in Hell's Kitchen mm-hmm. so great it was nice just a nice nod um, because for me it could have they could have easily just... There was a massive gap there, perhaps, which is at the end of this episode, we, the, the, the disembodiment and all that, mm. we don't see how he went from this shook-up kid who stands up for himself mm. to this powerhouse of that is Wilson Fisk, mm. as we, we've been introduced to. And that's what's still got me a bit... Okay, what, what, what happened next? Okay. How, how did he become... Yeah, this Paris. Yeah, no, I, I I definitely understand that. But one thing we've learned: if we ask those questions, we might get the answers in future episodes. Yeah. And I I believe it might have had something to do with his friendship with Mr. Wesley. To be honest, with Wesley, I think he might be uh, he might be giving some additional guidance to this this little child that's uh, that's covered in blood um, to lead him in this path as well. So I think the meeting of those two characters, which we may see in a future episode, might uh, might give us a little bit more insight into those two. Can I just say about um, Wesley and Fisk as well? The whole thing where they where they heard that Blake had woken up, and mm-hmm. Fisk says just says take care of him or take care of it. Yeah. And then when they're speaking to Hoffman, obviously he's there's that really cold, um, and you you just go you wouldn't want you wouldn't be under any illusion that he is like not to be messed with. Yeah. And then when he's speaking to Vanessa, and it's all, yeah, I was in Japan for a few years, and mm-hmm. yeah, what? It's a very different voice, Hello? yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know. And like, he's always very polite to her, and then mm-hmm. he switches over, and he's just like, what? Yeah. Even though it's Wesley. I actually thought it wasn't going to be Wesley, because he, he did that. Yeah. But it was. But it was very, yeah, it was very much, don't interrupt me when I'm speaking to yeah. this woman. Annoyed right? then that he had to end the call as well. Like, mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. They're very different sides of, of Wilson Fisk, and yeah, definitely some uh, some borderline psychosis in there that uh, that is starting to be explored. Well, definitely, big time, big time. Oh, the table. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I do love uh, I do love Vanessa's line about the table, though. I like your apartment. Don't like the table, though, and obviously you don't either. Which is <laughs> a good little catch from her, definitely. Uh, Irene, do you want to give us your next point? My next point would probably be about uh, Fisk's parents. Yeah, his mother is very. Like the way he is is with his mother, she's the one who actually sits and talks to him and calms him down. And you can see the parallels between the way he is when he speaks to Vanessa, mm-hmm. and then the way. He, but there is, thank God, not yet any parallel for the way he is when his father is speaking to him because mm-hmm. his father is a complete blowhard and he's just ranting at him yeah. and like you wouldn't know and you're so stupid and the two of them and then calling him fatty and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's just disgusting. <laughs> it's awful, isn't it? Yeah. It's a brilliant part played by Dominic Lombardozzi, who we've seen in The Wire before. He yeah. played, uh, played one of the cops in there. Pretty sleazy one of the cops, actually. Yeah, he's horrible in that as well. Yeah, like, but it, like he's, he's a fun... Really good. A much more fun character in that, though, uh, yeah. where in this he's playing a really sleazy father that I think I wanted to punch, and pretty much it looks like everybody in Hell's Kitchen wants to punch. Yeah. Uh, there's, no, there's no doubt in my mind that... This guy was always going to lose that election to get on the council. He has it no support. It is not to do with them. And again, some of yeah. the touches in the scenes that you see bruises up along yeah. the mother's arms. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't 
until that moment where uh, Fisk is looking at the wall and he's beating on her, you don't see any of that up until that point, except you assume he is a, a, a violent and abusive um, husband as well as father. But despite not seeing it, you see her marks. arms, marks, and bruises. Yeah. Like, it's really just superb touch uh, of detail that, mm-hmm. again, you notice and you go, yeah, okay, this just really adds that level of um, attention to, to the scene. It's great. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was really sickening the bit with the where the kid had been slagging his dad off and he his dad brings Wilson out to the kid who's there on his own then yeah, yeah. You're, you're an adult you don't do that like absolutely it doesn't matter that it's Wilson kicking him it's you know he's the instigator and mm-hmm. it was his idea yeah and they Bill, corner the kid like exactly Bill has beaten this kid to the ground and then gets Wilson to keep kicking him yeah. and keep kicking him it's it's uh, it's, it's, ter- it's definitely abuse but again a really well treated moment you can absolutely see why this causes some major damage on Wilson uh, yeah you really can and it's the line he keeps repeating as um he's, he's hitting, hitting him. him with the hammer mm-hmm. keep kicking him keep kicking him it just keeps repeating it over and over again again really nice little touch in terms of something that has impacted on the young Wilson Fisk yeah. from his dad it's yeah. a, it's a, you can see he has a great sense of what's really unfair and that just he can't he just like it's like he can't cope with that it's just completely unjust yeah yeah exactly exactly yeah really really tough uh, really tough some really tough scenes in there um but again it does lead me on to another point you're setting me up like i'm playing baseball today this is great Irene. thanks so much um this is just the, just the 70s flashback i thought it was so well handled it's it's really interesting the there's a, a graininess that's been attached to the film this film is shot in full hd i think it's uh that the, the the film that's used, excuse me, it's not a film, obviously, but the film that's used for the show is full HD. It's it's full on the most the most pristine cut you can get. And instantly, when it flashes back to the seventies, they put a grainy uh, grainy cover over it. It's got that sepia tone yeah. uh, to it, that kind of brownie tone, um, like yellow almost. It's, it's like a yellow, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then you see the kids riding by on the bicycles. You see the kids playing stickball, which is the, the New yeah. York total New York game. You know where you are. You know that you flash back in time. You know this can't be anywhere else except seventies New York. And you've got the Rolling Stones playing over the top never be anything better than that so yeah. um yeah absolutely classic i just love that that kind of design for the for those those back scenes or those uh, flashback scenes i thought it was really good lovely golf treasures on the dad as well yeah <laughs> those, you know see those absolutely white yeah yeah maybe he's just off the golf course but i doubt it no. <laughs> <laughs> that's my point uh john do you want to give us your next i um i love the whole doubt element that was being placed on Wilson Fisk by the other three members of of this group. Mm -hmm. Um, And I loved how that all kind of interacted separately within this episode. I I like the kind of idea that Nobu is really, really quite angry uh, with Fisk for, in his mind, allowing the Black Sky to get killed by by Stick. Mm Mm-hmm. And whilst Fisk is angry at him back, saying he did his part and so on, you again hear um, the threat um, from Nobu, really, um, that says, you know, do you want to renegotiate the terms of of our agreement? And all of a sudden, Fisk backs down Mm -hmm. from from taking that sort of moral high ground, if you want, with Nobu. And then Madame Gao kind of 
reiterates that that you know he he's never pleased with anything. He can never please him. Um, that element. But then with Leyland Owsley, it's really interesting because you do feel that he is just the number cruncher, but he really speaks out of turn, I felt, with Fisk. He's very much um, having a real sarcastic go at him in um, Mr. Potter's tailor Mm -hmm. shop or or garage. Um, And I I really liked um, that, you know, he says... There's, there's a complication and he goes I'm hearing that a lot recently or he you know he says I keep hearing you're getting it sorted but it's not by you and he really sort of digs the heel in I think yeah. to, to Wilson Fisk this and I liked it because it, it took uh, it made Leyland Owsley a bit more threatening like I, I like he's been the there's been a jokey a sort of humorous element to him with his quips and I've really liked that but all of a sudden he does turn that against Wilson Fisk and you can see Fisk again not liking it yeah. and then you have the whole Madame Gao scene where you know she's saying it's not just Nobu then mm-hmm. that's um, has got problems or is dissatisfied with how things are being dealt with but even uh, Leyland Owsley has expressed his dissatisfaction with yeah. the whole thing and I'm here to say get it sorted as, yeah. I, as I mentioned before and I just like that dynamic within uh, that grouping because I, I just think it's so easy for, for there to be the Japanese gang the Chinese gang the, the accountant gang. And, <laughs> and, and, you know, and then obviously with the Russians but this is really helping to flesh out these interactions mm-hmm. between the two to the point where we're saying he's not the kingpin here yeah. I mean, maybe he's the kingpin within New York, but these are very, uh, to an extent, external elements. Yeah. Um, there are certainly, you would think, with Madame Gao and the and the Japanese, uh, with Nobu, that you, you're heading back to things like Kunlun and this, these other connections to the wider Marvel universe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I really, I really like how they've done this because I just think it's so easy just to fall back and that they're just there and they come in when it's necessary for aspects of, I suppose, the main storyline of Fisk and, and Daredevil yeah. and Matt Murdock. Yeah. And it, but here you just flesh it out so much and yeah. I love that. And I thought it played well with the anxiousness that Fisk is having personally because he all the way through this he's just getting seems to be seems to be getting more and more awkward and fidgety Mm -hmm. and then it's that contrast when vanessa sort of in a sense is that reassuring point that he can focus on that seems to get him back together and i i like those sort of those contrasts within within this just one quick point about what you're talking about. Just, I like that Leland just calls out the reality of the situation for him now. He's been found in a car park by Daredevil, not in his place of work, not anywhere connected to Wilson Fisk. He's been found now by Daredevil. He's been attacked by him, and no matter what anybody does, unless Daredevil is taken out now by Kingpin, that's his job now. If you do not take him out, I'm just going to be found again and killed. That's basically what's going to happen to me. He's calling out the reality of it, that, yes, okay, you might think of me as the accountant, but... I'm now on the death watch for the, because of this Daredevil character. If you don't do what you need to do, I'm dead. That's why he's being so forceful with it. Yeah, and, but, and his threat then of, if I go down, that there's a lot of numbers going down with me, which Absolutely. again is, is a threat to him. So mm-hmm. Fisk is getting threats from all of his colleagues and all of mm-hmm. his partners within this organization, which is really, really sort of a great dynamic, I think. Yeah, yeah. 
the bit you said at the end about that was Vanessa that calmed him. Mm-hmm. But Wesley was great the way he said, with respect, sir, I don't think that's always true. Yeah. Or that you would ask me if you needed something. Yeah. So as, as much as Vanessa is kind of the one who gets him talking, mm-hmm. Wesley is Wesley is this part of that, though. He's He uh, he didn't scream at him to get out again. That he actually gave him a chance to speak once Wesley kind of had the guts to say to him, with respect you, that wouldn't. That's not necessarily true. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. But uh, yeah, good friend to have yeah. Wesley in a, in a crisis. You know? I definitely agree, and I, I suppose if I can maybe leapfrog into one of my other points is that I do feel that I just loved Wesley and Wilson in this episode. I kind of thought it was a great bromance or, or whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. I I loved how. Wesley always had his back, as as you were saying. Um, you know, he didn't like the way Nobu um, talked down to him, and he's questioning what do they bring to the table. Mm-hmm. You still see that this relationship is still very much um, a partnership. Actually, he does let him in by saying they're the necessary evil, which obviously then Wesley knows what that means, mm-hmm. um, and he says we have to be careful now that things are going well. Uh, because that's when you have to be most cautious. Mm-hmm. So it's a real partnership. It's great. I absolutely love this because it, it's normally it's the sidekick. and yeah. But you see there's more to it than that. And even when you see like normal friends would have where Fisk loses his cool and tells him to get out. And then as you say, he's, he's his friend. So he comes, well, I'm going to come back and help you because sometimes you don't know when you need me exactly, all the yeah, time yeah. whereas I do and obviously then he brings in in Vanessa and it's a bit of that whole the stormtrooper effect it's like this is the big bad but he doesn't just sit there and and scheme he does have these anxious moments and he needs to be reassured and this is what Wesley uh, brings to the table and I just absolutely think their dynamic so far in these mm-hmm. episodes has been great and again so another version of that right which there. yeah which takes it to a I'd say the next level and I think it really just develops their relationship and partnership together in this organisation really 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 well I, I think it's really quite sweet and lovely mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry best buddies yeah best buddies forever Absolutely. it's really quite weird I'm i I was on the internet. Oh, I was on the oh, interweb. This is, remember, it's a PG. Yeah, no, it's just actually there is some adult fan fiction. I'm certain there is. Of Whisk. Whisk? They're called Whisk. Whisk. It is brilliant. Um, and I, I, it's just when you said partnership there, I was trying to hold my laughter in mm-hmm. because it's. It, it is that bromance, <laughs> but there actually is a question there. Is Wesley gay? Mm-hmm. And is there a bit of a, a love triangle? Not a love, love triangle, but a, a oh, <laughs> kind yeah. of thing happening. No, it's just I just wanted to put that in. It's quite whisk. Okay. Gonna, wants the rights for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're calling it the Whisk Chronicles. Oh, I like it. Uh, it's, very, it's very possible. There's, there's definitely, a, definitely a supportive relationship in there between the two of them, whether it's probably the bromance thing, definitely. Uh, that it's probably not reciprocated from uh, from Wilson and uh, yeah unrequited uh, love yes exactly possibly possibly but we do love our Wesley um, yeah no it, it's platonic um, love between these these two men and it's really great and it's a friendship and it's a it's a tough one which I'd love to know 
how far it goes back. Uh, yeah. yeah, hopefully we'll find out much more as we go on. Uh, Chris, do you want to give us your next point? Okay, so after the hammer party winds down, mm-hmm. Wilson is like, we see Wilson watching his mother slowly dismember uh-huh. his father, and he tells a kind of teary-eyed Vanessa that I didn't do it for her. I did it for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's not proud of this. And then he sports his da- dead dad's cufflinks, which we finally now understand where this whole cufflink yeah. thing came from. Yeah. Um, but he goes this way. So wear these to remind myself that I'm not uh, cruel for the sake of cruelty. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, and he's building up the steam. I'm not my father. I'm not a monster. And that pause mm-hmm. where he goes, am I? Yeah. Holy God. This, that moment, kind of, um, that, okay, I, I don't know about our listeners, but that was the point where you really felt a connection to Fisk, because it, that was the point, and it's a fantastic screen, scene writing, yeah. because it was like, I don't know one person who's never, in a heat of anger, regretted what they did when they calmed down mm-hmm. and kind of went no when I was really pissed off and angry I shouldn't really have done that because yeah. it's a very human thing and that's I think the perfect connection it was like okay yeah. so okay I'm not saying I killed anyone with a hammer I'm going like, Although, in, or any other implement or any other or, weapon <laughs> at all. I'm not a mass murderer or even or, a mouse or, or a mouse yeah killing someone with a mouse um, but <laughs> Sorry, what? no. I meant killing what? a mouse rather than a human. Not with deep squeak. That would take a long time. Oh, for God's sake! Right, that's a lot of squeaking. Um, but in his voice, you really hear that he was questioning. Yeah. Am I a monster? Uh-huh. And that was just for me. It was like I got straight away started feeling that sympathy for Fisk. Definitely. Um, and that should have been the end of the episode. The sympathy for Mr. Sympathy of Mr. Fish. Yeah, yeah possibly. It would have been a great yeah. one. Yeah. Um, I'm so glad you said that because while you were talking, when you were saying your point to begin with, I thought you were going to say something like, I hated that. I, or something, the way, you were, the way you were saying it, it sounded like you were going to say you hated that moment and it was my favourite moment in the episode. And one of my favourite moments with Fisk so far is the breaking of his voice as he says, I am a monster. He finally has someone to actually bounce that question off. It's clearly a question he's been struggling with for his entire life. He's waking up every night uh, to these bad dreams or these bad memories basically and then going and seeing himself in the mirror in the morning as the boy covered in blood and finally has someone close to him that he can actually ask the question of he's shared the secret with her and he can actually ask the question do you think I'm a monster now that you've heard my real life story and it's a, a moment of uh, the voice breaks as he as he asks the question I thought it was beautifully done yeah. uh, I think the fact that he is a monster yeah. and he now knows that he is but she still accept, accepts him, mm-hmm. even though he is a monster. Because let's be frank, he is a monster. Yes, he is. Yeah. He is a psychotic yeah. monster. But that just D'Onofrio's deliverance mm-hmm. of that the script, like that was, if someone didn't come away bleary-eyed mm-hmm. while kind of filming that scene, mm-hmm. like I think the 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 actress that plays Vanessa. Mm-hmm. Um, I say she, that was actually probably real tears. There was yeah. no acting there because yeah. we you really hear this. Uh, D'Onofrio has got this. He this is he has become a. I, I hope he doesn't do that type of method acting where he became uh-huh. he lived with a mob boss and ate <laughs> omelets every day for. You know, but 
um, you could really feel that there was very uh, there was a high level of emotion in that scene, and mm-hmm. it just it just kind of yeah it hit me right it's there. Got you right there. Yeah. This might end up in the edit, but you know the the fact that he does that so convincingly when he was film when he was doing Law and Order Criminal Intent, mm-hmm. he had. I don't know if he had a nervous breakdown, but he had an episode and he had to take a break from filming. And really? then after that, they changed it so that he was only in every other one. Oh, right. Because right. it was too intense. Yeah. And actually, that season is where he goes to prison to find his nephew who he thinks is in there and right. nobody's heard from him. And it's really intense. It's actually very hard to watch. Like, really? Yeah. Really? I really can, hard I can to imagine if, if, if any of the scenes are anywhere close to this to this particular scene of, of uh, D'Onofrio and this particular character of D'Onofrio and what he's doing on the show I don't know whether I could watch a full season of, of yeah. that much intense and it's that sounds really interesting the same thing of it being written all over his face and you yeah. just get the feeling that he's actually feeling that yeah. right. like right. he couldn't act it if he didn't it, that's exactly how it looks like yeah. that's fantastic yeah no I, it's a great scene and I think it just plays so well with that whole final run-in of this episode as well it just adds the weight and I, I think Chris is right it's just it's so powerful mm-hmm. um, and it's brilliant it's absolutely brilliant yeah yeah. Ari do you want to take us back up on your next point this is actually my kind of wrap up point it's mm-hmm. um, Ben and the story because I thought that was really funny yeah he's there Daredevil has the oh, scene yeah. with him and he convinces him he's going to write he's, uh-huh. very, he's like you've got to write this and and he's working on it and, there's, and next thing television there's Fisk oh going, man yeah I'm coming out now you, you wouldn't know me my name is Wilson Fisk but yeah. <laughs> it's just I like know. and you just see him going like oh for God's sake it's like did he get a preview of the new story that, that Ben O'Rourke is writing and then uh, and then decided to use it as his speech on the TV it's yeah. like oh it was one of those frustrations when if you've ever written any you know any article for a newspaper or a website or if you've if you've obviously done your essay for college or for school can you imagine deleting it once you've gotten to your your big thrusting moment, your big thrust point of the of the article? You suddenly have to delete the whole thing, throw it away, and go. What am I writing for tomorrow? And now I've just been convinced that this is my big moment, this is my big story, and now I've got to throw it away. Yeah, it must have been soul destroying yeah. for him to have had to don't save. I mean, it would just be like you would cry. <laughs> I thought it was kind of similar to it was like um, art imitating life. It'd be like us with the podcast uh-huh. you know where we've said something and then the very start of the next episode yeah. it's all just like oh right now oh uh, Irene I've had it <laughs> we've done that a while when, we've, we've all when, seen I'm, that. when I'm in the editing I've usually watched the next episode after we've recorded a podcast and it's, it's sometimes I'm kind of looking at the edit button and going should I edit should that should we just get rid of it all together <laughs> but, because yeah. but no it's much more fun that way I think <laughs> um, yeah no that was actually going to be one of my points as well because mm-hmm. that was a direct nod to the Joe Pantoliano. Oh, right. When he plays Ben mm-hmm. in the movie, of the version 2003. Yeah. Where he deletes. That's right. He, he has the story that he's written about revealing Daredevil to, to Hell's Kitchen, yeah. isn't it? And he deletes That's that true. story yeah. before yeah. it goes yeah. And I think that was a really nice, probably intentional nod. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, look, there you go. Because we've seen a good few nods now between these two films. Yeah. These two premises of the takes on the. The character. Absolutely, absolutely. And that, that, that's always going to happen when they're based on the same characters, I suppose, but it's nice they're actually talking a, definitely a very similar scene in this in this moment uh, in, in, uh, in the show, uh, but a great one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. So, well, um, Derek, what's one of your next points? Um, Karen. Karen Page in this episode. Uh, I think she has her best line so far, her best moment so far. Um, 
we talked about it before, kind of questioning her, her reasoning for going after Union Allied so strongly. We've talked about it as, you know, is she just... Um, does she have a death wish? Basically, does she does she uh, does she see herself as not valuable as a character, and that's why she keeps pushing against this door that's basically been closed on her, and she's been told and warned off over and over again. And gets a great moment with uh, with Matt, essentially trying to get her to stop doing this. And what she says to him is, is I think it's it's perfect. Um, she essentially says she's not going to stick her head in the sand just because she's scared. And she is scared. She fundamentally calls out she is terrified by what Union Allied are going to do to her, but she doesn't want what's happened to her to happen to anybody else. And because she has been destroyed, she's been put essentially put in prison, almost murdered, put in court to defend herself, even though she didn't she didn't need to, she hadn't done anything at all really. Um, her whole life has been destroyed and now she has to work in a really bad law firm for it um, but uh, a really cheap law firm not a bad law firm a great law firm but her entire life has been turned upside down by Union Allied and she doesn't want this to happen to anybody else and she says I am terrified of what it's going to do to me but I can't let it happen to anybody else I think it's a great moment for Karen uh, I'm actually going to take the exact opposite view on this <laughs> okay I thought I'm you would so, yeah you, you, we, we do on this a lot yeah um, this is starting for me I was on Team Karen mm-hmm. for a lot of the this I'm starting to really dislike her really and I don't I think that's the point mm-hmm. I think like she has this moral high horse now she shouldn't be doing what she's doing she's she's sometimes a badly wrote character okay. uh, or at least she did Deborah and Wool possibly delivers the line wrong or I don't know I'm just not I'm not feeling the, the that that ah connection that we had in episode one mm-hmm. I'm now starting to go this this and it harks back to some of the source material where Karen is a, fundamentally a bad person mm-hmm. um, and I'm hoping that's why they're doing it I really really hope so yes okay I do understand where you're coming from that she's saying that she's scared and that's great that she is scared because then she's not she's not just some blonde bimbo kind of going after for me it was just I'm just for me it's just that I'm starting to see this flawed character and we've talked about it before previously about this the the destructive traits that she has Mm. That makes more sense to me. If I'm scared of something, I don't typically do it. Mm. I, if I'm scared about jumping off a building, I don't think I'll jump off a building. Yeah, but, but, she again, is going again, the exact opposite route. Again, to the point, she's scared of it, and she's going to protect somebody else from ha- from going through what's happened to her. That's the point. She's not being scared and just doing it because of what will happen to her. She's doing it to protect other people. She, in her own head, she is being a hero. And Matt calls it out. This is, her, this is totally her opinion. Matt calls it out and goes, I do not want people to be a hero. I want you to be safe. Yeah. That's what I want for you. So I do like it, though. It's a, it's a great moment for her. And I like that it's Matt that tells her to calm down. Hold on. Now you've got me on your side. We'll work this together. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's really good that it's been addressed to an extent about why she's pursuing something that she's ultimately afraid of and why she's making some of the choices, which I think... We've questioned and said, well, is this part of her destructive personality? I like the fact that that's been addressed. I also then do like the fact that Matt came in and said, stop being silly. Mm-hmm. You know, He's almost calling her out and saying, you're making no sense. Yeah. Because in some cases, 
it's difficult to rationalise what she's doing. So he calls that out. So I, I think it's really good that that has been addressed, and I think maybe now we see her plunge a bit further into a destructive part yeah. of her of her character because I think she she is. Yeah, I think pretty... even with that advice, she is going against it. And I, I but I like that. I like that dynamic. Um, to an extent. Yeah, I think I, to go back to the feedback that we received and we talked about on, on the last episode, I know you guys weren't uh, weren't around, but one of the pieces of feedback that we got was, as comic book readers, we tend to look at Karen Page and, and see her history in the comic books. That's all we see as, as readers of the comic books. I'm, like um, rose-tinted glasses, almost. Yeah, we're looking at her as she is going to fall really hard and she's going to be an alcoholic, she's going to be a drug addict, this is what's going to, what's going to happen to her in 15 years. Well, which, well, they've hinted. They've hinted already that she may have done other things yeah but to bear in mind this is a character that was created in the 60s and a lot of the stuff that we know happens to her happened to her in 1985 1986 and into the 90s so there were 40 years of occasional appearances by this character who was just the receptionist in Matt's office essentially and so we are definitely looking at her from the perspective of her huge storyline which they may not fit into season one they may fit that into season two or three or four it may not be the arc of the character but we are pushing a lot of that onto her as, as our feedback had said so but I, I think part of it is that the line has been drawn in the sand by Matt Murdock mm-hmm. now. He has called her out to say, we have to be smart about this yeah. and what you're doing isn't smart. We have to bring it onto our own turf. It's now to see in the future episodes, will she take that advice on board mm-hmm. or will she continue to pursue a path that is dangerous for her personally um, and maybe to an extent of hiding certain truths from Foggy and Matt because she was obviously doing that earlier on in episodes one and two where she kept certain information back. So it'll be interesting now that there's been a call out on that by by Matt to see kind of what happens. Mm -hmm. One of the other things I really liked about this scene was just how Foggy and Karen were talking about the investigation and that Matt may never know as he's walking up the stairs, he probably heard it out in yes. the street, uh-huh. and he walks in and he goes, "What don't you want me to know?" Uh, I just loved that whole little scene. I thought it was a good bit of fun within yeah. this within this scene. That you know, even though he's not in the room, he knows what's, he going, knows on. what's going on. Yeah. He's his, his hearing is attuned to Foggy and Karen, and I love that. I love. Foggy just trying to backtrack out of it and talking about his hairdo or something. <laughs> like, it was just a nice little humorous point, I thought. I thought it was really nice. So, John, do you want to give us your next point? Yeah, it's my last point, um, and it kind of ties in with what Chris was saying about the, the delivery by uh, Wilson Fisk and or Vincent D'Onofrio of, of um, you know, Am I a Monster? It kind of links in, I think, with... Um, with Irene's comment about that final scene where Benerick has has been writing the piece and then, in a sense, it no longer matters because Wilson mm-hmm. Fisk has outed himself to, to New York in terms of being this man behind certain developments in Hell's Kitchen following, obviously, the Avengers' uh, destruction of, of New York. And I just love that whole... Uh, intertwining of the flashbacks to the present day as you have this presence of uh, Vanessa 
being involved in his daily routine of making his omelette, of picking his suit, of picking his cufflinks. And some really nice little touches in there were, you know, she sits down with him at the table so he's no longer alone. She picks out the suits from to her, and that suit is getting slightly lighter, slightly closer to white. Mm-hmm. Um, that she bypasses his father's cufflinks to pick something out that's new for him to wear. And then it was something that she stands, I think you made this point when we were discussing it immediately after watching the episode, that she stands in front of the mirror mm-hmm. when he's trying to look into it. And she blocks that view, presumably of his younger bloody self that he keeps seeing in the mirror previously in all those iterations of this morning scene. And when she moves away, he is there. It is no longer this blood-soaked child looking back at him. He, in a sense, then has been given this transformation by her to an extent mm-hmm. and there's a nice little touch when she passes him the um, the cufflinks as well where it's just one of those great bits of acting where it's really subtle and she just touches his arm, just kind of squeezes his arm to say, there you go, I'm here you don't need to worry um, because Fisk has always come across as that awkward character and this is where She's like giving him this confidence, you know, that yeah. idea behind every great man is an even greater woman kind of thing. So I, and I love that. And I love that she's on the dais with him as he is then giving his speech and essentially mm-hmm. undermining, even though he doesn't know it, what Matt has tried to do by meeting Ben Eric. And with that, obviously, Matt destroys a very expensive laptop uh, computer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's not as poor as he makes him. I know. Yeah, that, that 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 bit for me where he threw the laptop across. I was like, no. I know. I was like, that was a nice computer. Um, <laughs> Throw the fax machine yeah. across the, the room. <laughs> that doesn't matter. It was obviously just to get the parallel with Wilson turning the table over before. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. But a, a very expensive computer and a very expensive table, definitely. <laughs> Um, one, one I, again, a kind of suspension of the belief here when you just mentioned the, the dais where they're standing. Mm-hmm. Why did he have a report? How did he be, get on the news? Yeah. So it was a bit like, so we know he's he we know he's a slightly rich man. Mm-hmm. But if a rich man in oh, New York just kind of goes, I'm going to, uh, I, 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 it was me, I'm buying some property. Mm-hmm. That's not really nine o'clock news. Yeah. And I thought, okay, it was great and it was well executed and the speech on coming into the light mm-hmm. kind of piece. It was nice. It was just a bit, meh. It was like, that okay. could have been done with a news article. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, there, there is a little bit of hints to it on the scrolling uh, scrolling news bar at the bottom of the screen. I'm so trained into watching those from watching uh, from watching news channels. A couple of little hints on the bottom. They say that it's a, the known philanthropist, uh, Wilson Fisk, has come out to say he is against... Um, the vigilante of New York, and he will do everything to support uh, everybody's efforts to save the city of Hell's Kitchen or save Hell's uh, Kitchen. So I that's where that. the news story was. But it isn't. You're right. It's not in his actual speech. His speech is very much a parallel to what's going on in Bel- Ben Urich's office and what Ben Urich is saying. But the uh, the scrolling bar says that he's come out in support of everybody that wants to save Hell's Kitchen, and he's going to put his money towards it. He's a known very wealthy man. 
um, you know, that evidenced by the hundreds of Armani suits that he has. Um, yeah, you know, that was uh, hundreds of every style of wonderful, amazing suits that I'd love that wardrobe. Yeah, basically. same here. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I thought actually there's just a quick one that, that I also thought was a bit of a nod to Daredevil 2003, where uh, where Daredevil there had a row of suits just like uh, just like oh, Wilson yes. Fisk's row of suits in this one. But, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, he did do the hand touch. Exactly. Oh, okay. Yeah. Think about that, mate. And also the fact that these are two fairly important women in his life now mm-hmm. where you, know, you see his mum step up to the fact that he's just killed her husband, mm-hmm. abusive husband, I hasten to add, and his dad by supporting him and then moving him out of the city you know, to his uncle and auntie mm-hmm. upstate uh, New York. And then you have this new lady in his life who is um, really fully on board after his darkest secret has been revealed to her she kind of says it wasn't your fault you know you can see that this now she's fully kind of becoming sort of embedded in his life to an extent and how that just Intertwines between the old, the seventies, and the present day. The mm-hmm. old, the new. His mom, her, um, really, really good. Yeah, yeah. I definitely got a touch of Norma Bates off uh, off his mom when she essentially <laughs> cuts the body apart for yeah. it to be delivered out into the river. She's for the done next that week. before, definitely. It, it feels like, well, definitely, she's going to be the guiding hand for him for a couple of years. So she's definitely going to have input into what happens to Wilson Fisk. But yeah, I could see a little path of Norma and Norman Bates uh, in there, definitely. Yeah, yeah. saying that, I, I said we were missing a few elements of the backstory still, mm-hmm. even with the Don and kind of that nod. Um, I think you're right. I think we'll probably, in some of the future episodes, get one or two more tidbits about why and how he has become more of what he is. So we know now he is becoming this fully formed, fully functioning scary kingpin yeah. um, but he probably wasn't that before he probably was the lumbering oaf mm-hmm. and how he's gone from being the lumbering oaf uh, to a bodyguard to a head of a family mm-hmm. to the head of a family with a severe psychotic problem and not <laughs> sleeping yeah. to a head of a family and the kingpin yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see that. I'm sure that if they don't explore it this season, hopefully they'll explore it next season. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. I think season yeah. two is already ready for it. Uh-huh. It's on its way, on its way. So does anybody else have any thoughts about the episode, any other notes that we haven't covered? The only other point I have is the scene between Ben Urich and Daredevil, mm-hmm. or the man in black, which is, I would have liked to have seen a, an umbrella. Absolutely, I know exactly what you mean. That that scene went on for so long in the rain, and I don't know whether it's just me being a wuss, but if I see a couple of drops of rain like that, a heavy starting like that, I go and find a bit of shelter. Like, you know, there's got to be a couple of doorways in New York they could have stood under for a second, but the fact they don't even flinch as, a tor- as torrential rain is falling on both their heads for a good five minutes scene, you know, a five minute discussion between the two of them felt very filmic rather than real life. Sit into the car, no? <laughs> sit into the car. I was there going, sit into the car. Yeah. <laughs> it must be really difficult to act as well with the water sort of streaming down your face mm-hmm. um, from the rain machine. Yeah. And I was just thinking, or even put your coat up. I can, you know, for, for Ben Ulrich, if yeah. he put his coat up, it, it would even make it more sort of subversive yeah, the yeah. whole meeting because he, he's hiding himself to protect himself from the rain but also it kind of 
it keeps him undercover mm-hmm. and undercover. Nice. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Very good point, John. Very good point. Uh, I found one other quick point, and this might be me jumping to a total weird, uh, a weird obsessive connection. Right, go with me here on this. Okay. Um, always when you see a sign in a TV show, particularly a Marvel show, I always kind of write it down and see what it could be. Uh, the memorial wing where Blake is being kept is called the uh, Tooth T U T H Memorial Wing. Let's have a quick look at, up what T U T H could stand for. All right, go with me. I promise this okay. is probably the biggest biggest uh, Easter egg jump I've ever done on the TV show. TUTH is Trapuvan University Teaching Hospital in Tibet, which I thought was really interesting because a couple of our characters coming up on the sh- on the show have a lot of connections to to Tibet. Iron Fist, we're going to have Doctor Strange, we'll have a big connection to Tibet, and I'm wondering if that's why they threw it in there as a little Easter egg for Iron Fist and Doctor Strange. Yeah, no, that'd be a good one. Um, Actually, when I saw, and this is going to be my, this is my final, final mm-hmm. kind of reminder, is um, just when we see Matt come into the office, mm-hmm. the sign across the way is Atlas Imports. Okay. Uh-huh. And uh, f- some of you may know the Atlas Comics mm-hmm. later was evolved, was started back in the early days and became Marvel Comics. That's right, that's right. Atlas Comics was the first name for Marvel before yeah. it became Marvel, that's right. So yeah. I say that's a nice nod, yeah. I think. Well, I hope. I like and it looks the same logo as well. Yeah, yeah, no, I like that one. I like that one. Well, that's our thoughts on episode eight of Daredevil, Shadows in the Glass. So do you, Derek, defend this episode of Daredevil? I do. I think it was a, a tour de force for uh, for Vincent D'Onofrio. I think it's uh, one of one of the great episodes we've had last week in Stick. It was the creation of uh, Matt and the training by Stick of uh, of Matt Murdock. This episode now we have essentially the training or the becoming of Kingpin for uh, for Vincent D'Onofrio. And yeah, a really really good episode, definitely. Irene, do you defend this episode of Daredevil? I do. I agree that Karen was annoying. I agree <laughs> that um, Wesley is getting better and better, that relationship between himself and Fisk. Mm-hmm. Um, even Vanessa didn't really irk me that much in this one. Um, she did a good job. Good job, everybody. <laughs> Chris, for Shadows in the Glass, do you defend this episode of Daredevil? I do, I have to say. For all the wrongs that the show does, it is 90% getting better every episode uh, I didn't think they could top the stick episode mm-hmm. but they did and uh, with the antagonist the, uh, the they're turning their antagonist into the co-protagonist mm-hmm. yeah. uh, of this show and I think as long as they keep that up they keep this into season 2 I will quite happily just watch the Kingpin show mm-hmm. uh, I, I would watch that because it's just without Daredevil he that the, he is a scene stealer, and it does make me question how they can keep topping it. And mm-hmm. I'm hoping I am wrong, but I, God help me if it goes downhill. Yeah. <laughs> I will not be happy, Stephen. Tonight I'm, I know where you live. <laughs> nice, nice, John. Do you defend this episode of Daredevil? I most certainly do defend this episode of Daredevil. I give it four point five bloody hammers out of, of five. I was it was a toss up between bloody hammers or deranged mothers out nice. of five, um, and I I kind of went with four point five bloody hammers out of five. I think this is one, if not my favorite episode so far. Right. I 
I'm liking this holy trinity of Fisk, Vanessa, and Wesley. To me, Wesley, like Iron said, keeps getting better and better and better. I loved how the flashbacks intertwined with the present day. And I kind of like the fact that he stole Matt's thunder, yeah. Matt Murdock's thunder and Ben Urich's. It's kind of nice sometimes to see the bad guy win through mm-hmm. um, in these. And I say bad guy loosely because this is a complex character uh, and person who has the same motivations as the man in the black mask. And it fully justifies um, having this origin tale of Wilson Fisk or the beginnings of Wilson Fisk and his jump off point being put in this show. And for me, that was great. So brilliant episode. Loved it. Um, Can't wait for more. Please make sure you send us in your thoughts. Uh, Send us to feedback at DefendersTVPodcast.com. We'll be back next time with episode 9, obviously. Uh, Heard great things about this one. This is the one that I keep seeing on Twitter. Episode 9 is the greatest episode of the series, so hopefully we're not going to be disappointed on that one. Um, But thanks so much for listening. Um, If you want to get in contact with us, you can follow us on Twitter at DefendersCast. You can follow us on Facebook. Just search DefendersTVPodcast. You can also follow us on Google+, Plus, DefendersTVPodcast. Uh, or as I said, email us at feedback at Defenders TV Podcast. Um, make sure you subscribe to the podcast at defenderstvpodcast.com slash iTunes. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks so much for joining us, um, and we'll be here next time. All right, guys, see you soon. And remember to assemble then. Thanks very much, everybody. Vincent, you're beautiful. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. If we don't get a chance to talk again. Take care of yourself.